your Bibles, uh, you know we're working through the book of Revelation, and so we're going to be looking at chapters 6 and 7 today, so we'll make it through the, both of them. And uh, uh, again, a pretty powerful uh, passage of Scripture like the one we looked at last week. Um, it actually, as we read, we're going to read all of 6 and 7, it'll take us into the first verse of chapter 8. But one of the things I've been attempting to do as we work through the book of Revelation is to kind of put a word or a phrase to some of these sections or images. Because I realize um, probably will happen two or three years from now, it'll be December, and you'll be in your annual Bible reading plan, and you'll get to Revelation, and you'll be saying, now I remember all of those eyeballs all over the yeah. creatures meant something, but I'm not quite sure what Chase said back then. And you're not going to go re-listen to the sermon, you're just going to turn the page and keep reading because you've got to make it to the end of the Bible year plan. So my goal has been to at least maybe give you some sort of a word that you can put over these sections to help you remember the big image. That's really what's most important about Revelation is the action, the big point of these images that are taking place. And so uh, if you were with us from the beginning, when we looked at these seven churches and Jesus amongst the churches, one of the ways that we summed that up was the experience of pressure that all of these churches were facing. Some of it political, some of it persecution, some of the pressure that they were facing was from their own success in some cases, writing off the significance of God. Sometimes it was their poverty, but all of the churches were responding to different forms of pressure. Then last week, if you were with us, when we did chapters uh, four and five, we summarized this, this vision that John has as a vision primarily about worship. He gets caught up into the middle of the throne and all of this worship that's happening around the throne. And it seemed to pull us into this reality of, even though this pressure, political and persecution and famine is going on amongst the churches there, just above them in heaven, was this great act of worship that John found himself invited and caught up in. All of it centering around God and this slaughtered lamb you might remember. So you could write worship above those chapters. Uh, we'll do the same thing this week as we come to chapter 6 and 7. Chapter 6 and 7 picks up right where the other chapters did with the opening of these seven seals. You might remember them, the scroll in the hand of God, the holds up and the lamb come and ta- comes and takes at the end of the last chapter. And then those seven seals that have locked up that scroll begin to be opened. Um, if I had to put a phrase to it or a word you could write over it, I think these seven seals are the experiences of human history. You could write something down like history on it, and I think that'll make a little more sense as we work forward. Um, You'll remember that chapter 5 left off with the lamb, this lamb that appeared to be slaughtered, that we identified as Jesus Christ, and he was holding up this great scroll, and he was preparing to open the great scroll. We describe this scroll as the mysteries of God. You might remember the the scroll was jam-packed with words written on the front and written on the back, all of the things that God had been doing and was doing, held up and locked up within these seven scrolls. And John had the realization that none of these creatures nor him had access to it. None of them could break those seals and read what was written on the scroll, as John soon realized. Only Christ had earned that right, the slaughtered lamb, to come forward and take the great scroll and begin to open the seals. As he does unseal each of these seals that is on the scroll, it's all set in this context of the mystery of what is written on the scroll. Uh, you're going to see that pretty clearly as it plays out in this, these two chapters. But let's go ahead and read the two chapters and we'll work through it. But again, remember, we're set right in that context, these mysteries of God, these things on the scroll finally being broken open, the experience of these seven seals. So Revelation chapter 6, I'm going to read through 7 and then eight, chapter 8 verse 1. So uh, chapter 6 verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow and a crown and was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that the people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in its hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the living creature say, Come. And looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slayed for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer 
until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gull. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Chapter 7. And after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the arising sun with the seal of the living God, and he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from Asher, 12,000 from Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from Simeon, 12,000 from Levi, 12,000 from Issachar, 12,000 from Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The last part, verse 1 of chapter 8. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Uh, it's starting to sound a little bit more like Revelation, right? <laughs> Those are the passages you're familiar with. This is the passage that commonly gets referred to as the, uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Very Revelation-like, these four horses that get displayed. Uh, let me try to point out a little bit of the structure, because it'll be important as we get to other parts of Revelation. Then we'll work through some of these details like we did last week. Um, there's seven seals, we described them last week, that get opened here, that open up this mystery of the scroll that John has already given us a description of. Uh, I think about each of them as a mystery, a way that this mystery of the scroll begins to be understood. So as each of these seals is removed from the scroll, we start to understand what it is that's been hiding the scroll, that's kept the mystery of the scroll locked up behind these seven seals. I'll show you more of that in a minute. I think it'll make sense. But the first four seals are these four horses, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The next two end up being experiences. And then finally, the seventh one that's actually at the beginning of chapter 8 is the seventh seal, silence. Um, there ends up being kind of an interlude between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. That's structurally what you probably sense was going on there. You get this description of the 144,000 and then the great multitude between them. It, uh, it functions as a little bit of a buildup. You feel the kind of drama as he gets this scene before the final seal is actually opened. And then the strange occurrence that this final one is silence. Not quite the climax you might have expected it all building to. So, uh, Let's start with these horses. Um, probably a little bit of a side note. I realize many people have probably sat through Revelation seminars or sermons before. Maybe you've read books on Revelation. So I always know when I'm working on passages like this, I tread into an area where people usually have preconceived ideas or strong opinions. Although most of you have sort of explained to me through this that you're just as curious to figure out what this all means as I am working through it. Um, 
as we work through it, though, what I would ask for you to do is kind of keep an open mind as we work through these images. Um, really, it's hard to do Revelation in one week. I found myself sort of wishing I could do a 20-hour sermon and you could all just sit here for an entire day and we could just go start to finish because that's how it was originally read. This was one experience, one revelation. So a lot of these things will build on each other, these images, and I think you'll see us working towards some of the things you've known. But um, I, I promise there will probably be places where we'll rush past some of these images and you'll say, now, wait a minute. At one point, I heard somebody explain it this way. Um, I'm aware of those usually. Sometimes we don't have time to deal with all of them. But I think if you'll wait through the entire book of Revelation with this, you'll see how these images come together. And then at the end, if you say, no, 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 I think those horses were helicopters and those lines, tanks, have at it, right? So it sounds good. Uh, the first four seals are each of these riders on horses that come. The first one, a white horse, then a red horse, then a black horse, and then what's described as a pale horse. Um, those images probably communicated a lot more in the first century where John and these churches were hearing these images than they do to us, but they're not hard to get. Um, the first one, this rider has a bow in his hand, a crown on his head. He rides on a white horse, and we're told, again, the action being the most important part of the image, that he goes out to conquer, a kind of conquest, this bowman on a white horse. Um, don't let the white horse thing take you too far. We tend to think of white horses as being the good guy's horse. So the lone, the lone ranger rode a white horse. But here it's probably a slightly different meaning. Later on, Christ is going to ride a white horse. You might remember that. But probably what's happening here is an allusion to a great enemy of the Roman Empire that most of the churches in John would have known exactly what was being described when this image came up of an archer on a white horse. Uh, there was an empire throughout this time of Rome on the far eastern side known as the Parthians. Uh, it's actually the territory that's modern-day Iran. So you can imagine some of the, the Persian territory that even now we think of as being skilled archers. It's a little bit of that image that's going on here, these Parthians. The archers in the ancient world usually would have been the lowest form of military unit. So they would have had lots of archers. They would have put them out. They would have uh, been on foot usually, and they would have just been the prelude to the actual battle happening. It might be something like if you've ever been to a civil war arena, enactment or watch a movie about the Civil War, the military idea was if you could get enough muskets pointed in the same direction, shooting at the same time, you could get the power of the volume, the volume of fire. And that's how most of the time in the ancient world, archers were treated. If we could put enough arrows in the sky going in the same direction, it's at least going to scare the enemy and have some damage. But the real power, the military image of Rome, wasn't the archer. It was the legion with their shielded units and their spears and swords. That was the image that struck fear into most people. It was the real power system of the Roman Empire. The Parthians developed instead skilled archers that rode on horseback, which was a real novelty in the ancient world. They actually invented a short double-curved bow that they could use while riding, and they were known for making raids, quick raids, riding in and riding out of Roman territory. Uh, it doesn't seem like they actually posed a great threat to Rome, but for some reason, the ability to strike deep into Roman territory and then flee quickly, it left this people and these horsemen with a kind of reputation in Rome that most Romans feared pretty significantly. Significantly. Uh, they understood this idea of a white-horsed archer riding in in conquest, taking, and then fleeing out as quickly as they had come in. And most of these horses that they rode on, we know from history, were prized for being white. This was the image of these Parthians riding in, taking, conquesting, and fleeing out of Rome. Um, it's hard to find a good image for that. Probably the closest thing we have in our modern times to parallel is something like if you lived in the 50s or 60s during the Cold War, many students have experiences of doing test runs for nuclear attacks by hiding under their school desk or hiding under their bed. Not that it was going to do a whole lot of good for you, but you understood that fear of the possible attack, this threat of a nuclear device dropped on a U.S. city. That's a little bit of probably what was going on with this image of the Parthian skilled bowmen riding in on their white horses to a Roman citizen. The real image, though, is something like this. It's about this experience, the human experience of conquest. The Parthians never did actually invade Rome. This never turned out to be a prediction of what would happen, but it seems to be a way of characterizing this sense of someone riding in and taking the world run over with all of the conquests, the looting, the pillaging, the constant threat, the fear of being beaten. From pirates to burglars, from invading armies to plotting terrorists, it's one of the truths of history that's driven so much fear for so many people that even in the safety of our own homes, our own territory, there's still a threat of invasion, of conquest, of being taken. We know fear, every person at all times, that fear of having things, peace, snatched from us, and this seems to be the image of this first writer, the great human experience of conquest, of conquering, of conflict. 
The first piece of the mystery, the seal that locks out this scroll, God's word, is the violence, the taking, the experience that so many have known throughout history. The fear of living in this world overrun with so much conflict, so much taking. The second scroll, or the second seal on the scroll was the second horseman. The image seems to be picked right up and continued in the conflict, the red horse. Um, the writer is said to take away peace and cause men to begin to slay one another with the sword. The horse is the color of red. Of course, it's the color of blood. His image is the color of war and conflict and violence. It's a testament to the fact that all of human history is a constant reality of violence and war and all sorts of experiences. Um, the New York Times recently did an article that they called What Every Person Should Know About War. Uh, there were some interesting facts they pointed out, this one in particular. Over the past 3,400, so 3,400 years of recorded human history, they've only been able to find 268 of those years that was at peace, 8%. So 92% of human experience has been war someplace with some people. Uh, there's estimated right now to be 1 billion people who have died throughout human history in direct battle conflicts. If you add up all of the people currently standing in the military, 21.3 million people have full-time careers just preparing for the possibility of war and conflict. There's no avoiding the fact that human history is a significant part of what makes it difficult. The suffering is this realization of war, of loss. And here it is, this red horse riding in as the second one. The third seal on the scroll is this horse that comes in black. Um, this one's a little bit more strange than the other ones. He's carrying not a bow, not a sword, but he's carrying, do you see it in this one? He's carrying scales, which doesn't seem to strike a whole lot of fear into someone. Um, I imagine the third horseman was a banker. That seemed to be a little bit of the picture, riding in on people. Roger wasn't here, so that joke didn't work near as well. But uh, there's actually a line in one of Ezekiel's prophecies where uh, Ezekiel hears that these words, that his people will eat rationed food in anxiety and drink rationed water in despair. Uh, the image here, and you see it in the words that get picked up, seems to be something about the economy or the experience of goods and food being thrown all out of balance. The scales have been tipped and no longer can people eat injustice, but the prices have been all messed up. A denarius, as we see, is the price now for this one uh, volume of, of wheat and these three portions of barley. And we know from the ancient world in the first century that the prices here are not what we would have expected them to be. A denarius was a silver coin in the Roman Empire, and it usually equated to one skilled laborer's day of work. So every day you worked in the field, every day you worked a construction job, you earned something about like a denarius. And we know that that one denarius according to the passage, is now only enough to buy a quart of wheat, which historians say is probably only enough for one person for one day. So the image here is, here's a skilled worker who works his entire day, and out of it profits only enough to feed one person, by no means enough to feed an entire family. His other option is these three quarts of barley, which might have been enough to feed three people, but the barley not nearly as nutritional as the wheat would have been. Uh, the image seems to be of people who are working and trying to survive and struggling with the injustice of an economy that's stacked against them, the math not working to be able to provide to care for their children or family. And then tacked onto it is a strange command that the oil and the wine should not be touched. It's protected. Um, the oil and the wine are the costlier of the items described there, much more expensive than just a quart of barley or a quart of wheat. And the idea seems to be some sort of a divided economy where the poor struggle to have the most basic food, but the wealthy are able to maintain even their greatest possessions of wine and oil without conflict. The poor suffer the worst of the famine, while the rich end up insulated from their wealth and the whole experience, if it wasn't already soaked in enough violence and conflict and conquest, now the very source and access of food is caught up in competition. The rich against the poor, the poor against the rich, so much a storyline of history. Uh, I don't think I need to spend too much time pointing that out. Many of us know what it is to do the math, trying to figure out how to make the money work at the end of the month. It seems to be a part of the human existence. All of our modern theories of economics and distribution, we still struggle with poverty. We still have people all over the world in starvation, this third seal. The final horse, the fourth seal, brings the color pale. The pale horse rides in. Uh, it's literally the horse drained of its color, and it represents death. And it takes a massive number, a fourth of all of the inhabitants are killed by violence and hunger and beasts. Um, it's the experience of death, the final of the riders, building up all of this conquest and violence and starvation in this image. 
the reason I suggested to you that you label these seven seals that are broken here, this section, this image as history, is because all of this seems to be describing what has been true about human experience. These are the mysteries of living as a human that seem to obscure what God is doing and what God's words are. This scroll, this knowledge of everything that God has in store, locked up in heaven, it's these very experiences, these seals that seem to make those hidden words unknowable. What is it that God is doing in this? What is it that God is trying to accomplish? Who is God? This mystery of knowing him locked out by these human experiences throughout history of suffering and pain and a difficult world to live in. Um, you might not find yourself numbered in some of those numbers this moment today, many of us not facing the same kinds of conflict or violence that have before. But surely you have a friend or neighbor, even now, who's struggling. Wait long enough, and eventually one of these riders passes by your house, and you know what it is, this human experience of suffering. Destruction and conflict and poverty and sickness and health. That's the image of this riders coming by, taking their passes throughout all of history. Uh, it struck me as really important this week. I know that's a hard image to sort of settle into. We much preferred the image of the throne last week, where everything was worship and peace. But it struck me that these two images are set down right beside each other in this revelation. This great image of the throne with all of the living creatures perfectly balanced and this incredible vision of God, the power of him on his throne. And right beside it, the next two chapters, this human experience back down on the ground of earth, these writers carrying in suffering and pain, question and mystery. The Bible is remarkably honest about the fact that these are the seals that make us wonder, that leave us caught in the mystery of what God is doing in this history and in this time. It's these very earthly experiences, the history of suffering and pain, that makes the mysteries of God seem so hidden to us. At times, makes us wonder, what is God doing, and how can God be working all of this for salvation, given this experience? You look at the experience of suffering, and it seems to obscure God. How can God be in control? Why does God keep letting stuff like this play out? These writers constantly riding through history, circling back again. Um, there's a character I've been, you can roll your eyes, I've been reading Dotovsky's book with the Brothers Karamazov. I've been trying to work through some of the classics, so you know your Russian novelist, of course. I'm not very far, and I have it on audiobook, so it's a little bit cheating. But uh, he was a 19th century novelist, and he has this great character in the book. And in the book, he has, uh, there's these sets of brothers, and one of them is a monk, so he represents this very devout faith. And one of the other brothers in the book is a, a stout atheist. He's constantly sort of taking shots at his brother who's given him life to this monastery. And the atheist brother, one of the ways that he keeps up his passion for atheism is he has a journal that he keeps with him and he's constantly writing down stories about suffering that he hears if he reads an article in the newspaper about some terrible event he'll cut it out and add it to his book so he has this massive collection this book for him of everything that's wrong with the world every bit of suffering any strange story about another person's pain he accumulates it in this book and this book for him becomes the evidence of why god cannot exist because just look at how much is in this book how much suffering exists um, of course, that's one of the old adages that if you've ever sat down and really talked to a person struggling with faith or even been honest about your own doubts and struggles, you know that question so well. How could God allow such suffering in the world and still be God? To be honest with you, losing a family member this week, it was even one that I saw firsthand. I know this isn't an abstract philosophical question. It's one of those major questions that for all times, for all people, has been one of the mysteries one of the things written on that scroll that seems locked out by these experiences, these seals. How could a good God allow so much pain and so much conflict in the world? I'm going to work towards that question, but before anything else, I want you to see how honest the Bible is about that question, which I think is a pretty remarkable thing. It doesn't shy away to try to answer it with some simple platitude or some memory verse cliche that you could just quote over and over. Look at how strong how powerful and how honest this revelation, this image of suffering is. The Bible does not shy away from the topic of the human experience of struggle and the mystery and the uncertainty, the doubt that it plagues so many of us with. Just look at the suffering in the world. The Bible puts that question right in the middle of Revelation. It sets it right down next to the very image of the throne room of God as saying to all of us who have ever struggled with the question, I get it. God understands that this tension, his mystery, set down in the human experience of suffering, is a struggle, a mystery to understand. Uh, look at the fifth seal, because it begins to add even more to it and give voice to that. These four seals introducing us to the suffering. It gets clearer. 
With the fifth image, John sees martyred saints under the altar. This is the place that the priest would normally have gone and poured the blood of the sacrifice. But here are these saints under the altar, and what are they doing? They're crying out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood, those who dwell on the earth? The big question, with all of this violence, them representing those who have given the most, those martyred, persecuted, even to death, The Bible is so remarkably honest about the exact question we all feel. How much longer? How long do we suffer? How long does this suffering go on? How long must this human existence with all of this pain keep circling back around? Um, Oftentimes when you try to address these questions that people have, philosophical questions about the existence of God, people feel very enlightened when they point out that Christians have a real problem here, right? Maybe you've had one of these conversations. Uh, not too long ago, I had uh, somebody contact me and want to sit down and work through things they were dealing with, and they gave me a list of questions they had on paper, and one of them was here. I can't believe in God because I just look at how much pain there is for people. How could God possibly exist? And people start to feel like they have a good handle on God because they've collected this evidence. Uh, How could you believe in a good God because there's so much evil in the world? I always want to say to them, I don't think you've paid or been honest enough about the Bible to really ask that question as if it's something new that you're bringing to level against the existence of God. God is remarkably frank about that very question, and here it is, written into the Revelation, people, those who have given their own lives, begging for the same answer that you come with. How long? How long do we have to believe that this is what human existence is supposed to be like? The Bible is more honest and I think actually more descriptive and more forceful with the question than most of the skeptical people are when they bring it to God. Even the skeptic doesn't ask the question with the kind of brutality that gets imaged here in Revelation. Uh, One of the commentators says this about Christians' unique perspective on dealing with this question. They write, Nothing that we experience as evil is unnoticed or unacknowledged. It is all out in the open, included in the preaching meaning of history. Christians do not shut their eyes to the world's cruelty in themselves or others. St. John has trained us to be especially attentive to it, to name it with honesty, no euphemisms, no evasions, and deal with it courageously. Despite the numerous caricatures of pious people who stubbornly shut their eyes to the cruelties all around them, lest they be disturbed in their heavenly meditations, And despite the uncontested innocence of some who seem to remain naively happily on their belief that the world is a mighty fine place after all, my own conviction is that Christians, for the most part, are the very persons in our society who can be counted on to have no illusions about the depth of depravity in themselves or in the world. No other community of people has insisted so consistently through the centuries on calling evil by its rightful name. And here it is in the middle of Revelation human experience of suffering. I really want you to hear this this morning. I know it's not an easy topic, but Christians aren't hiding from the truth about the world's brokenness. When you hear that question from people, how could a good God allow so much suffering? Most Christians say, I know, right? (laughs) I have the very same question. Here it is. Look, right in the middle of Revelation. We're the very first people to acknowledge that this world and us living in it are infected with the same kind of suffering, the same kind of injustice, the same kind of wrong that seems to have plagued so much of history. But Christians can go further than just the question. Thinking about suffering is something we would all like to avoid, but inevitably it is unavoidable. Uh, There's something really important this morning, even though I struggle to set such a hard passage of scripture down on us, it's important because all of us at one time or another have to come to deal with this. Um, If your tendency is to come to passages like this in scripture and say to yourself, nothing's going wrong right now, I would really prefer not to deal with that and skip over it and save it for a time when something is going wrong, which is what all of us would like to do. What ends up inevitably happen is you find yourself unbelievably unprepared for when those moments do in fact come. Um, This is one of the things that makes it really hard to be a pastor, if I could be a bit transparent with you. Um, I realize it's a hard sell to get you when life is going well, everything's going so well outside of this room, to come here on a Sunday morning and really soak yourself in the suffering of humanity. It's not what really any of us wanted with the cup of coffee this morning. But as a pastor, I so often see people who for years, decades, are unwilling to do this, to really think deeply about what this human experience is and what it means for their life. And inevitably, when the day does come, when that suffering, when that rider passes by, they find themselves unable to deal with the moment. Um, I'm always amazed and broken because it tends to be people who have spent decades in a church worshiping, reading their Bible and daily devotionals, serving, 
all sorts of religious activity in their life and walking away from all of it with this idea that serving God is somehow all about setting them on a smooth and easy path towards heaven. That everything from this point on, as long as I'm faithful, will just get easier and easier as I ascend towards eternity. But then one of these realities, these experiences, these historical moments of being human comes upon them and they find themselves with nothing to stabilize. No foundation, no faith to be able to settle them back into. So while part of me this morning knows it's a hard sell to say, let's think hard about suffering, the other part of me says, you need this desperately, whether you realize it or not. And the work you do here in passages like this on good days will become for you the foundation, the faith that you need when days are trying. Decades of serving God and nothing there when they finally needed it. Faith that can't see any further than their own climate-controlled little bubble of Christianity they've imagined. We need it burst with this reality of human experience and the real struggle, the prayer of these saints beneath the altar. How much longer? Here are your brothers and sisters crying out, listen to them, and take away from this. Life cannot be lived naively. Maybe naive about your own sin, maybe naive about the experiences to come, but here, reading this story, you're forced out of the naive faith that refuses to take seriously this human experience. You aren't being honest about history, you aren't being honest about the Bible if you're not willing to sit down and take this passage seriously. The last thing that the world needs is more naive, cliche Christians talking about how blessed everything in life is. We need Christians who are willing to be honest and open and vulnerable about this human experience that much of it is suffering and the mystery of finding that blessing in the midst of it. The Bible is remarkably unnaive about that experience and invites us into it, not ashamed of the question how much longer, but willing to hear the prayer right underneath the altar in heaven itself. Look at this next seal, how it forces that question out. The sixth seal is finally brought about in natural disaster. It serves to force even the naive to finally face the real problem at hand. A great earthquake comes with the sixth seal being open. The sun is darkened, like the trees beginning to drop their produce. Everything begins to fall out of the sky. And every person, rich and poor, king and slave, all of them, now with no difference, find themselves crying out the same words, the last words of the seal, who can stand? With so much of this suffering, who is it that can stand through this human history? Um, this was a hard passage to work on this week because it's painful in all kinds of personal ways, and all kinds of generalized ways. But for all of the blood and death in the book, for all of the problems, the suffering that happens, for all of this question, who at the end of all of this human history can stand, there's one image you cannot let go of as you work through passages like this. You have to keep track of the storyline that's been evolving in Revelation so far. The striking image of the last two chapters was this slaughtered lamb. These martyrs now cry out, but they're not the first ones in this story to have been killed. The blood that we read in this red horse and these disasters, the moon turning to blood, is not the first blood of revelation to be spilled. What's being experienced here in the prayers of these saints, the crying out of the kings and the poor, this horse that rides in, the disaster that comes out upon creation, it's not the first time that this suffering has occurred. The first suffering of the book, the first death of this book, was last week's image, the revelation of the Lamb, who walked into the center of the throne room as one who had been slaughtered. The lamb who's opening the seals has suffered under the same conditions. Don't miss that. That's a really important point of this image that's going on. The very one that's calling open all of these human experiences is the lamb who has experienced him himself. The story here is not some distant God who unleashes horses on the earth to destroy it in destruction and sits back on his throne watching it all unfold. God himself is covered in the same blood, this slaughtered lamb, that's covering so much of this experience of human history and all of these seals being broken open. Slaughtered by the same injustices, the same human experience, this lamb. Like the white horse, Jesus was conquered. He was conquered by Rome, by the religious leaders as they mocked him with a fake crown and gambled over his clothes, gambled over his body, his possessions, his life, taken in conquest, the white horse experience. Christ knew the red horse, his own blood being drained out of his body, the whip and then the spear. He knew the injustice of the black horse's scales, everything in the system, the economy of justice being off, to be in need, to be robbed, to be taken advantage of. He knew the pale horse's sickness, the setting in of death and suffering. 
He knew what it was to bear the long moments waiting for vindication, like those saints who cried out in prayer, like the martyrs beneath the altar. He lay in the tomb for three days, waiting how long until vindication. And at his death, just like here, the earthquake rocked the ground and tore open the temple. There's nothing here in all of this human suffering through all of these years that the Lamb has not first participated in before he steps up to reveal these mysteries and break the seals. Last week, we said that the slaughtered lamb was the only one with the authority to unlock the mysteries, the suffering, the fact of death that we realize in these seals. That is, Jesus is the only one who can make sense out of all of the suffering that so much of humanity experiences. The human experience, with all of its contradictions of how can God be good when so much seems wrong, Jesus is the only one who can step forward and begin to unlock that scroll and begin to make sense of the mysteries of these experiences. Or, we quoted it last week, Paul in Colossians, listen to how Paul puts it, the mystery that was hidden for ages and generations is now revealed to his saints, to whom God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ in you. You in Christ. This slaughtered lamb participating in the same human experience that you find yourself wrestling in, suddenly leading you into a deeper understanding of these mysteries, revealing it. The Bible is remarkably frank about suffering, and it doesn't here give us every detail that we might ever possibly want as an explanation for why. The martyrs are told, after all, to wait just a little bit longer. They're not given the answer they might have wanted in the moment. We aren't given a long list of why you lost a job or why you lost a family member or why you continue to struggle with a particular kind of sickness. But it does tell us what suffering is not. This is really important. If you take nothing else from this image, I think this is the one. It does tell us one of the reasons we suffer is not this. It is not that God is distant. It is not that God is distracted or uninterested or unmoved by the misery that we face. The suffering of human existence is not evidence against God's love, because when we get this image right, we realize that there is the Lamb, Christ, participating in the same suffering right alongside us and by it revealing to us the mysteries of God. That's the implication that usually gets leveled. God can't be loving, especially when you start to record all the suffering like this passage does. If God could allow all of the suffering, then he must not care. He must want to do harm to us, or he must not be capable of stopping it. But the slaughter of this lamb, Christ, his death, the revelation of these mysteries, it forces us to abandon those objections and look for deeper reasons for why this suffering might be happening. This suffering cannot mean that God doesn't care. For he cared enough to involve his own son in the very suffering that I find myself in in this moment. God, who is under no obligation to pay a moment's attention to any of us, comes down and participates in every bit of being human, every pain and every difficulty of the whole experience. He fills the full force of it on himself. You know, it's typical. Uh, you saw this when we had the last hurricanes. Uh, President Trump has been down when we had the tornado in Joplin. One of the things that inevitably happens is presidents will come to a disaster. And one of the things, even as ridiculous as it sometimes was with Trump, they will go looking for signs of empathy. Has he shown enough empathy to show that he really cares about being there in this place? Uh, that's not exactly what Christ does in this story. God doesn't wait until everything's been destroyed and then walk down and say, I care what you've been through. Uh, instead, what we find out is this lamb, Christ, has been there in the midst of it with us. As if a president were to come down and take out an emergency flashlight and radio and hunker down in your house and ride out the storm. And just at the moment it was worse, offer himself up to save you and to spare your possessions. That's the image, not of a dignitary who comes down and observes the destruction, but one who literally comes down and rides the storm out with us, who cares and participates in the suffering itself. And who would look at that person, this dignitary, riding out the storm and say, I don't think you've shown quite enough empathy here for me to really think that you care, right? No, we look at this slaughtered lamb and the length that he has gone with to participate in our suffering, and we begin to realize that though there may still be mysteries around why, it cannot be that God is unloving. It cannot be that God is distant and doesn't care because there he is set down in the same suffering as us. That's one of the real distinctions of Christian faith. The lamb, God himself, was willing to be slaughtered too, caught up a part of this human experience. It must not mean that he's incapable. It must not mean that he's unloving. It must not mean that he's distracted or uninteresting because he <clears throat> finds himself in the center of the story with us. 
Revelation is already hinting at something that's only, only going to grow bigger and bigger. At some point, I have to stop or this will be a 20-hour sermon. Uh, but one of the themes that eventually it's working to is the real power of God in Revelation. The image that really conveys the power of God is the slaughter, the suffering of the lamb. The fact that the lion of Judah turns out to be a lamb in the first place and then a slaughtered one is a great reversal about how real power works, how the power of God, this mystery, is working in the midst of this suffering. We'll get to more of it as we go through Revelation, but it's enough here to say the reason cannot be that he's somehow uninterested. That leaves one difficult but really powerful explanation for what to do with our suffering. God must be using this suffering for something that he intends for good. Another way to say it, God must be planning or using this suffering for something that he intends a purpose in. There must be purpose hidden in that scroll, those words that are locked up in this experience of suffering, that if I knew, or someday when I do know, will somehow make this experience that he was willing to suffer with me better for it or make sense in some way. I know that's hard advice to hear when you're in the middle of suffering. It's one of the reasons I hope you'll be willing to take it in now and really settle it in your heart before it comes so that it can be some comfort. It seems a little too objective. Well, there's some meaning in it. I just won't know what it is. But that's an important experience to really lock up. Uh, This image of you unknowing, suffering, but trusting by faith that God is doing something in it for good is one of the most powerful implications of faith. Somehow, Even when we cry out for an explanation, how much longer, how much more of this God do we have to take? We still walk away from this revelation with the belief that God is in control and using even these writers as some part of his plan to redeem and restore creation for good. And he gives us a picture of it. Uh, This interlude before he gets to the final seal is exactly that picture. The sixth seal ended with the question, the last words, who could stand, right? And what we would expect, especially given everything we've just said about this slaughtered lamb, we would expect the answer to be, well, the lamb. He was the one who was able to open the seals and open the scrolls, so surely he would be the only one who can stand through those scrolls, the seals being opened. We would expect it to be him. But John turns his attention in this interlude, and what he sees, the ones that he sees standing, are these four angels holding back the winds and a fifth angel going around marking 144,000 believers. After that, John sees that 144,000 turn into a great multitude, too many to count from every tribe and every nation. The numbers of believers, as you've seen in Revelation, have been multiplying. So last week we had the 24 elders. Do you remember? 12 probably representing Israel, 12 representing the New Testament apostles. They were representatives of believers. Well, here that number gets multiplied into 144,000, which is probably something like 12 times 12 times 100, right? It's just a way of saying it's bigger. It's multiplied over and over. And then he turns the next time, the number gets even larger, so large that he can't count the number of people who are standing. The answer to this question, who is it that can stand? And so verse 9 reads, After this, I looked up and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and people and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels who were standing around the throne and around the elders and around the four living creatures, they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God and said, you'll remember this word from last week, Amen. Amen. Again, the whole image, the two chapters coming together to this moment of worship, these two realities, the realities of the throne, the reality of human existence, finally brought back together in this truth of worship. These are the ones able to stand through the suffering, the ones who have been marked and sealed by God, the very ones who have been crying out how much longer. One of the angels turns to John in this moment and says, do you realize what you're seeing right now? Do you realize who this multitude is? And John says, you know, and the angel responds, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. The tribulation there is all of this suffering of human history. This great multitude are those who have found themselves able to stand through all of the suffering because they found themselves washed in the first blood, the lamb's blood, his slaughter. They've trusted, participated in it with him, and find themselves now standing in the place that he alone has the power or the ability to stand in. That is who can stand through the suffering of human history. Not the rich, not the prosperous, not the kings, the emperors who have conquested and held power, but the ones who have participated in the blood of the Lamb. 
the ones who have suffered and trusted and believed and waited, those who hold on to this lamb, those who find a way of looking at the suffering and instead of condemning God for it, by faith believe that they're participating in the very story of Christ himself, which will lead to vindication and resurrection and hope for all eternity. Listen to the song they sing at the end. This was the revelation it all works towards. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. What a powerful image. And he will guide them to springs of living water. My favorite line from the two chapters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every tear of all of human suffering is wiped away. Listen really carefully to this. This revelation does not answer every question you will ever have about suffering or why it's happening. It doesn't try to. It acknowledges the fact with a kind of frankness that's shocking that those sufferings will be hard and they will be painful. They will leave you with unanswered questions. But it forces you to be not naive about that existence. That is coming. But this revelation does answer the ultimate question, the most important of the questions in those moments. Everything that we suffer now is a participation in what Christ has shared with us and what Christ is doing in history. Everything we suffer is working to reveal the mysteries of God in Christ. And he will make you able to stand through all of it on into eternity. It will not be a mystery forever, suffering, not for that much longer, just wait a bit more, the word that comes to those saints, as he tells the martyrs, because eventually this scroll will be opened, and everything that has been suffered will be made sense of, will be made good. All things work together for the good of those who believe. Not a naive cliche that Christians say, but in the midst of the suffering, a faith that compels us to believe, even this will be made good. Dotovesky in that novel later on has a later point about this issue of suffering, and he uses these words to describe this hope, this faith. He writes this, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all of the humiliating absurdities of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the, dis like the discrepancies fabricated of this impotent and infinitely small mind of man, that in the world's final moments, at that moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for all the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all of the crimes of humanity, for all of the blood that has been shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened with good. I think that's what chapter 7 is ending with, the last line when it says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every bitter moment, every difficult situation, someday in eternity, will be made worth a moment of worship. A mystery that now we can't understand, but one day then fulfilled. Please, 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 as your pastor, if there's anything I could ask you to listen to, it's those words. Soak that into your heart now so that someday when you suffer, it's there to draw upon that even this experience is someday being made for good, that there is a moment coming in eternity where as hard as this is to fathom now, I will worship God for his goodness even because of this suffering that I experience here. Faith strains to see that, even in these moments when it's most difficult to see, that suffering will be made right, that all things will be worked for good. So the seventh seal is finally opened, verse 1 of chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven. I love that part. Uh, with all of the images that have been building, silence is not what we thought it was working towards. But this is the final reality, the final expression of the human experience. It's the silence of the seventh day of creation. When God sets back and finally realizes that what has happened, that what has been created is good. It's the silence of a good companion a friend, an eternal friend, now put in a right relationship with everything being said and everything fully known and all of the goodness being worked out of even the pain. It's the silence of a kind of joy and contentment that finally realizes through all of those moments just what these mysteries were, just what God was doing in them. It's the silence of no more tears, no more petitioning, no more crying out, but a silence of peace. 
of all being made right. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and I realize that, God, with this many people, even this many in a room, some of us are suffering. Some of us have friends and neighbors that are suffering. Some of us still are wounded and suffer from events long ago. Others of us, as much as we may not want to admit it, have suffering around the corner, suffering in days to come. And God, we realize by this revelation, as you were giving this to John and John giving it to his churches, that this is to us a gift, as hard as it is to read. That by this image, God, we begin to participate and understand and prepare ourselves to be a participant in even the suffering that you bore. That God, as those moments are happening now or as they are to come, God, I pray that you, by your spirit, would strengthen our faith, that you would strengthen our perception to recognize even when we're plagued with doubt and frustrations and anger and questions, begging out to God, how much longer, why does this happen? That God, even in those moments by your spirit, we might open our eyes and see a slaughtered lamb. And we might see in those moments that even this, even this pain, even this suffering, God, that there you are with it on your, your shoulders, with us, riding out this storm. And that God, by the hope of your resurrection, overcoming death, God, we begin to realize that even what we suffer now in this place is just the beginning of what will be vindicated. That we too who share in the suffering will share in the resurrection. That we too who share in the pain will share standing in the place where no one but you could stand. That one day this scroll will be opened wide and every pain and every tear will be wiped away and all of it will be exposed for good, God. And that like these saints who just before were crying out in pain and suffering, finally find those cries to be cries of worship of your goodness and your holy and your greatness as you restore all things and redeem all things, save all things and work all things for good, God. We're not naive about that. Help us to be honest about it with those who suffer, to share in it with them, friends and family, to not give cliched answers to people about what it is they're facing and the difficulty of the questions, but to come to images like this of you, God, and recognize that even in it, you are at work. That this revelation pulls us into believing and seeing that more is going on. More is here than we get considered. More is here than we have the ability to see. So by faith, we hold on to it. As we sing in a moment, God, we find in this last seal peace, a sense of what will be there in all eternity, but even now is well, is good, that trusts, that looks at you and says, I'll follow even into the suffering, knowing that you have good things in store, knowing that salvation and resurrection is coming. God, put that peace in our hearts. We need it now, some of us in specific ways, some of us in general ways that will be there for later, but all of us need it. A sense that you are writing this history, this human experience towards good, even when we struggle with it. So like those saints, we worship you this morning. We join together and we sing your praise. We add our amen to heaven's amen and say, let it be. Let this be so. Let this be our reality. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Stand and we're going to worship this morning.